from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Deborah Vanden Honard. Deborah is a Canada Research Chair and professor at St. Thomas University. She's the author of three books, The Widowed Self, The Older Woman's Journey Through Widowhood, By Himself, The Older Man's Experience of Widowhood, and Equality of Men and Women, The Experience of the Baha'i Community of Canada, which she is co-author with her husband, Will. I started the interview by asking Deborah where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Oh, I grew up uh, on Long Island outside of New York City and in a middle-class Jewish home, and it was just what seemed to me a very average growing up, nothing out of the ordinary. What were your interests growing up? My interests growing up were um, the civil rights movement and singing and reading. So how early on were you interested in the civil rights movement? I was pretty young because I was born in 1951, and so I was probably about 10 years old when the Freedom Riders were really doing their thing. And my parents were quite interested in civil rights. So these were my heroes when I was growing up, the Freedom Riders and the Civil Rights Movement. How did you express this interest? Well, I think a lot of it was through conversation at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was a kid, so I couldn't do much more than that. As I got a little bit older, then I became involved in the anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. And I did go and march in Washington, and I remember marching in New York City at one time. Mm-hmm. And so I was quite involved in that movement when I was old enough. Tell me about your interest in music. Well, I was a singer. I enjoyed singing, and I sang a lot of choral music, and I enjoyed listening to choral music. And uh, that, that was just one of the hobbies. I had a very good, I was fortunate, I had a very good choral music program in my school growing up. And so I was always singing in a choir my whole life when I was growing up, uh, classical music. And what was Jewish religious life like for you growing up? Well, I came from a family that was Reformed, so that's not a family that is deeply observant. But being Jewish was very important. So we did, we did celebrate Passover and didn't eat bread during Passover. I went to high holy day services and Friday night services sometimes. And I went to Sunday school my whole life. But it was really... Um, really knowing that you were Jewish, because don't forget that I was born right after the end of the Second World War. At that time, just being Jewish was such a huge thing. What was high school like? High school, I went to a very good high school academically. Again, it had a wonderful music program, which really took me through. As I got more into high school, say in my junior and senior year, then I was more involved in the anti-war programs. So I was involved with you know, being concerned about the Vietnam War and learning about it and listening to the news a lot. And once I got to grade 12, I guess I did started demonstrating. But academically, it was a very strong school. I, I took French, I took music, 
and uh, prepared for university. And where did you go for university? I went to State University of New York at Albany as an undergraduate, and I majored in philosophy and the anti-war movement. And it was when I was in university that I, that I found out about the Baha'i faith. About a year and a half into university is when I actually became a Baha'i. So there was actually a curriculum anti-war movement? <laughs> but, but we were pretty serious about it. So when we weren't in the class, we were talking about mm. it and looking at the news. And yeah. sometimes we went on demonstrations. So that was was really yeah. quite a large part of my experience, mm. at least up until I became a Baha'i. And then, of course, um, I was more involved in the Baha'i community after that than the, not the anti-war movement anymore after that. So tell me about how you ran into the Baha'i faith. Well, I had gone away to university, and um, my best friend in high school stayed in on Long Island and went to community college. She eventually graduated from university, but she started at community college. And it was actually her mother who ran into the Baha'i faith. Someone thought that the Baha'is were Jews who believed in Jesus. That was what originally attracted my friend's mother to find out about the Baha'i faith. And my friend had become a Baha'i, and then... I wanted to find out what she'd gotten herself involved in. So I went to a couple of Baha'i meetings, really at first, just to figure out what was going on in her life. Uh, what, what fascinated me about those early meetings was the unity of the races at those meetings. Because, as I told you, when I was growing up, the Freedom Riders were my heroes. But by the time I got to university, the Civil Rights Movement had transformed into the Black Power Movement. And so that movement really did not look at unity among races. It really looked at separation, which was very sad for me. But when I met the Baha'is, they were black and white and everything else. And they got along, and nobody was saying, you did this terrible thing to me. They were just together in unity. And that's what really first started me taking the Baha'i faith seriously. Once you started learning about the Baha'i faith, what was your initial reaction to the the Baha'i faith itself? Well, what was going on at the time, uh, historically in the States, was that there were all sorts of religious groups. So first, I really, really didn't take it that seriously. It just seemed another one of these odd groups. But um, I did start going to Baha'i meetings, firesides, information meetings on a regular basis and really got to know the Baha'is. And I probably spent the first six months arguing with them. And uh, when I finally started reading the Baha'i writings and really saw the words of Baha'u'llah, then I knew that this was right. And then after about a year of investigation, I became a Baha'i. You had mentioned that you, your involvement in the anti-war movement dissipated after you mm-hmm. became a Baha'i. Can you explain for us what was it in the tenets of the Baha'i faith teaches that? And secondly, what was your reaction to that tenet, knowing that you were so involved in the anti-war movement? Mm. Yeah, the Baha'i faith teaches that Baha'i should not become involved in partisan politics because they are divisive. And they don't hold solutions because the, the Baha'i faith teaches that when people argue and when they divide that way, that everybody's wrong because of the division itself. And when I first became a Baha'i, I really didn't understand it that well. I did it because that's what the Baha'i writing said I should do. And I knew I believed in Baha'u'llah, so I knew that I should follow these rules and study them. As time went on, 
um, I realized I can still remember actually going to a talk and hearing a speaker say, well, that none of the politicians had the right answer. And I knew that I had really been getting quite discouraged in the anti-war movement after a while because it was clear, even with the best of intentions, that it wasn't accomplishing what people wanted to accomplish. And as things have gone on, I've been a Baha'i for 40 years practically. So as time has gone on now, I've it's really become more and more obvious that the political systems that we have that are based on adversarial functioning. So I'm, especially now I live in Canada, you know, you have the government, you have the opposition, which is very a very honest way to put it. In the United States, we see how polarized everything has gotten. If you work within the system, it just becomes more and more divisive. So the longer I've been a Baha'i and the more I've thought about it, and really I think politics itself has become worse over those years. I've really come to understand that and see that working through unity is, is much more effective. Most of us think that, that we'll work for peace and then eventually we'll get united, that unity comes last. But the Baha'i writings in, in several places say quite categorically that you have to start from a place of unity and then you can accomplish anything. Unity of purpose, uh, unity of heart, unity of humanity, whatever it is. And right now I'm participating in a group on my university campus. I teach at a university, and it, we call it our interfaith spiritual gathering that we have on Mondays. And this, this was organized by myself and my husband and uh, the Catholic lay minister woman. Um, we started it, the three of us, and we've been doing it for two years now, and now we have the local rabbi comes and some other people participate. And the reason it works is because it started from unity. We had been talking about this project for quite a long time. We weren't strangers. We weren't suspicious of one another. It started from unity. And this is why it works. What was your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? I never really knew my father's reaction. My mother was more outspoken. My mother was very unhappy when I became a Baha'i because she felt that I was abandoning the family. She felt that I was abandoning the Jewish community. And again, remember, we're a generation right after the Holocaust when the survival of the Jewish community had really been in doubt. And so she was quite unhappy about it at the beginning. So I made a promise to myself when we had that conversation that I was never going to miss a Jewish holiday. And so for the rest of her life, and she just passed away a year ago, I never missed a Jewish holiday. I always phoned to say Happy Rosh Hashanah or Happy Hanukkah or Happy Passover. I never missed one. And over the years, as she saw me marry and raise a family, and she got to know a lot of Baha'is over the years, she really became a, a great supporter of the Baha'i community. And you couldn't say anything wrong about the Baha'i faith if she was there because she really had learned to appreciate it and respect it and really had great affection for it. And why didn't you know what your father's reaction was? He just never really said. He, he was more close to the chest in these, but he did, he did like being around Baha'is. When my husband, when we first got married, was the alternate representative of the Baha'is at the United Nations for the Baha'i international community. And during the period that he was doing that, my father was traveling a lot for work, and he used to love to look up the Baha'i number in the phone book and call up and say, hi, Baha'i, which is something he really enjoyed doing, and, and talk to the Baha'is on the phone. 
One of the nicest things that happened was when my parents were on vacation one time. They went to Hawaii, and he made this phone call again. And whoever was on the other end of the phone was very welcoming to him and actually invited my parents to dinner. And I thought, this is how every Baha'i wishes her parents would be treated by the Baha'i community, whether they know them or not. And they went and they had a lovely time. So he was, was just a very private person that way. For example, I knew my mother was an atheist her whole life, but I really never knew my father's beliefs. And you never thought to ask? Well, you know, in family, some things you ask and some, some <laughs> things you don't. Yeah, I noticed that a lot in uh, Jewish families, that there's a fair number of atheists. I don't really know. I mean, I know my mother was an agnostic for her early life, and after the Holocaust, I think she became an atheist. A lot of people, a lot of Jews, I think, lost their faith because mm. of the Holocaust. But I... I couldn't speak to that as a general trend at all. Actually, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I mean, you hear a lot of people say, you know, how could a loving God let something like that happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Deborah, what did you do after college? Um, after college, um, I, I got a master's in library science, so I was a librarian for a little while. And then I met my husband, who, as I said, had been... A, with the Baha'is at the United Nations, um, and we got married actually fairly quickly. And um, then we moved to Canada a few years later. He had been, he's originally from Holland, but he had emigrated to Canada earlier in his life and had really just come to the United States to work at the UN. So we uh, moved to Canada, to New Brunswick, Canada, which is the Atlantic coast of Canada. And uh, I had my children, and then I went back to school and eventually got a Ph.D. in sociology. Maybe you could just spend a few moments telling us what the Baha'i international community is about. Well, the Baha'i international community represents the Baha'i world community at the United Nations. And really, uh, the Baha'i international community was involved with the United Nations from its very earliest days. And so it has what they call consultative status with some of the organizations of the UN, for example, the Social and Economic Council. So the Baha'i International Community, we call it the BIC, uh, writes statements often at the request of the United Nations. It's one of the most active non-governmental organizations associated with the UN. Also, in more recent years, it's been very involved in the defense of the Baha'is in Iran, who, of course, as you know, are persecuted. Possibly uh, our listeners aren't as aware of what this, the situation is in Iran with the Baha'is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, since the Islamic Revolution uh, in the late 1970s, of course, the Baha'is, the Baha'is have actually been persecuted in Iran off and on throughout their entire history since the Baha'i faith originated in Iran. And uh, for some Muslims, Baha'is are considered apostates or heretics because we believe in a prophet that comes after Muhammad. After the Islamic Revolution, the Persecution has intensified, and over 200 Baha'is have been executed. And even in that period, the persecution has waxed and waned. And right now, we're in a period where the persecution is once again fairly intense with a lot of arrests and attacks on Baha'is in their local communities. I myself have been uh, a member of the affiliated global faculty of the Baha'i Institute for Higher Education, and this is uh, Baha'i professors all over the world, not all only Baha'is, but mostly Baha'i professors, who teach online university courses to Baha'i students in Iran 
because any Iran Baha'is are not allowed to go to university simply for being Baha'i. So what keeps the government from blocking those websites? Well, they do sometimes block the website. I can't say for them why they don't block it more seriously and consistently, <laughs> but when I was starting my class uh, this last summer, with I was teaching a course on gender and society to a group of Baha'is in Iran. For a while, we, it was a little rocky getting started. I didn't have students for the first three weeks. Something had glitched, so I can't answer on behalf of the government of Iran why they don't block it, but we seem to manage. For Baha'i youth, it's the only vehicle, maybe there are other vehicles similar to that, in which they can get a higher education or college education or university education because it's closed off to them in Iran itself? Yeah, as far as I know, right now, this is the only way that Baha'i students can get a university education. And the professors like myself who do this work do it all on a volunteer basis. And it's very moving, really, to work with these students. It's hard to imagine being in their situation. So you said you got your Ph.D. in sociology. How is it that you picked sociology as a concentration or a focus? Well, initially it it was kind of a fluke. Uh, I just wanted to take some part-time courses uh, when my children were very small, and I registered for a sociology course and got quite interested. But because I'm a Baha'i, I'm very aware that the way we organize society has a huge impact on the way people experience experience their lives and on the relationships together. So it's really a very um, fitting discipline, I think, for a Baha'i because, of course, the the Baha'i faith itself has a prescription for a way to organize society, the world society. It it really is very fitting to also look at sociology because the Baha'i faith teaches that science and religion have to agree and work together. So this brings in the social science and the Baha'i teachings. And it's a very exciting work. So you mentioned that the Baha'i faith has a prescription for world order. Can you describe that a little more? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, um, we talked already about the importance of establishing unity right away. And so recognizing humanity as one family is fundamental. And, of course, there are quite a few social teachings. But what I was uh, thinking about primarily when I said that was the Baha'i uh, organization of, an admin- of its administration, which takes place on a, a local level and a regional level and a national level and on a world level, where the Baha'i, Baha'i governing bodies are elected with no candidates and no campaigning and no issues. Simply, everybody who's over 21 who lives within a jurisdiction is eligible to be elected, and people vote for the people whom they think are the most qualified. So right away, before, when I was talking about that adversarial form of government, you can see that that's, that's removed. You can't um, give to people's campaigns a lot of money, which is one of the big problems today in government. If there are no candidates, there's nobody to contribute to, so you can't, you can't have problems that way. And then once the Baha'i bodies are elected, the individuals who serve on those bodies have no authority as individuals. Only the body itself has authority. And they have a process of meeting that we call consultation, in which when they have something they want to solve, they start by trying to define the problem. If you go into any kind of other organization where, say, Robert's Rules of Order or any kind of government, people start with the solution and then they argue over it. 
In Baha'i consultation, we start with the problem, we try to amass the facts, we look at what are the spiritual principles underlying this problem, and only then do we start looking for solutions to the problem. And one of my favorite things about the way we consult is that if I have an idea for a solution, I, I say my idea, and then it belongs to the group. It doesn't belong to me anymore. And so I don't feel I have to always hang on to that idea. Maybe someone else has a better idea that the group will find. And I always think consultation is working best when people vote against their own idea <laughs> sometimes because they, they're not attached to their own idea. And so this is a process, and it's working in Baha'i communities all over the world, and it really creates unity and helps unity to grow. After you got your Ph.D. in sociology, what did you do? I started doing teaching at St. Thomas University. Interestingly, I teach at a small Catholic undergraduate liberal arts university where I live in New Brunswick. So uh, my children were still small then, so I, I taught part-time, and I do research. My focus is on aging, uh, partially because one of the fundamental Baha'i teachings is the importance of eliminating prejudice from our lives, every kind of prejudice. And one kind of prejudice that is so rampant throughout society that we usually don't even think about is prejudice based on age. So a lot of my research has to do with age. All of my research is thinking about prejudice and uh, exploring it and thinking about how we can get rid of it. So I've, done, I've written a couple of books. One, I interviewed widows about their experiences as widows, and I've interviewed widowers about their experience as widowers. So those are important books because they really are people who live on, socially on the margins of our society. And very few people have done this work. My husband and I, um, about 10 years ago or so, were asked by the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of Canada, and this is our national governing body, to do a study of the equality of women and men in the Baha'i community. And so uh, we held focus groups all across the country, and we looked at what the Baha'is know about the equality of women and men, which is a fundamental teaching of the Baha'i faith, and how is it being implemented? Where are we in our understanding and what we're doing? Because no one has ever seen equality. So it's a great experiment trying to follow the teachings and see what it looks like. How do you assess the understanding of the equality of men and women in a community? Well, it's, it's interesting how this came together. The National Spiritual Assembly had asked us to do a survey. And we said, okay, we'll do a survey. So we started talking to each other and tried to think about what questions would we ask on a survey to figure out where we are in implementing equality. And then we started asking everybody we knew about this. And it was very, very hard to come up with questions because we just don't know. So we thought, well, one way to understand what people know is to have these groups answer the question, if you were going to try to develop a survey, what questions would you put on the survey? And so people initially come up with answers like they think, well, on the local spiritual assembly, the local administrative body, are there equal numbers of men or women? Uh, things like that. Are what the officers in a community, are they men or women? And these are important questions, but they don't really get to the heart of what we understand. And so then people would often say, well, we really have equality. The writings say we have equality. And then they would start talking about it and start thinking about women's opinions being taken as seriously as men's 
opinions. And then often, interestingly, in these groups, people would come up with some situation in their community where they suddenly said, wait a minute, we did this thing, whatever it was. And, and that's, that's not equality. And then they would get very excited and start thinking about it very seriously. What we found was that the women were more knowledgeable about what the writings, what the Baha'i writings say about equality. It was hard for people to visualize issues around equality outside the family, which was very interesting. But we did find that the consultations themselves were really very wonderful, and you could see the mutual respect between men and women in those consultations. And that was really very exciting to see. I would think one of the most effective ways of assessing equality of men and women in a community is to, as you did, I guess, actually witness the interaction in consultative venues. Yeah, it's very important because studies outside of the Baha'i community that look at how men and women interact show that even though the stereotype is that women talk a lot, in mixed groups men talk a lot more, and they usually control the topic of the conversation. So when that begins to change in a consultation, then something very important is happening. Deborah, you mentioned you've written a couple of books, and I guess a couple of them were about widows and widowers. Yes. What's the name of the book? Uh, well, the book about women's experiences is called The Widowed Self, The Older Woman's Journey Through Widowhood. Mm-hmm. And that came out in 2001. And the book about widowers is called By Himself, The Older Man's Experience of Widowhood. And that just came out last spring. After we did the study of the equality of women and men, my husband and I wrote a book called The Equality of Women and Men, The Experience of the Baha'i Community of Canada. And that came out about five years ago. So are you still teaching at uh, St. Thomas? Yes. So you've been there for quite a few years. I started full-time in 1997. I I really spent, when my children were young, um, I tried to teach part-time during the school day so that I would be home when they got home from school. Is there any work that you see you would like to do that you haven't done yet in any of the areas that you have done so far or, or new areas that you haven't branched out into that you're... Well, yeah, one project that my husband and I have been involved in together, and I would like to do more of it, and we haven't had an opportunity to do it fully was we live, uh, as I said, in Atlantic Canada. Atlantic Canada is very homogeneous. Almost everybody there is either from English, Scottish, or Irish background. After the Islamic Revolution in Iran, Canada was the first national government to welcome uh, Iranian Baha'is in as refugees. And they had a really wonderful program with the National Baha'i Community of Canada, and that was that when the individuals came to Canada, they were sent to different parts of the country. So instead of all of the Baha'is, Persian Baha'is coming and all coming to Toronto or all coming to one other city, they were sprinkled all across the country, some in big cities, some in small towns, and a fair number came to our part of the country. Now, that was 20 years ago, and many of those people have moved into the larger centers where it is more diverse, where it's easier to fit in if you're not from a European background. So we, over the number of, last number of years, have been interviewing the Persian Baha'is, the Iranian Baha'is, who came to our region and stayed, because it's not easy 
to fit in when you come from a non-European background and the community is so very homogeneous, European background. So that's a very exciting, very interesting project, very moving. And we've managed to do 10 interviews so far. We do in-depth qualitative interviews rather than surveys, which you could do at a much greater rate, but you'd learn a lot less. And so that's a project that we would really like to bring to completion. Is there anything you can share with us now that you've learned from these interviews? Well, one thing that we know and that we found uh, for many other people's research is that the Baha'is integrate into the wider community beyond just their own cultural group much more readily than other groups. Because when those Baha'is came to our area, there had been no Baha'is from Iran there before. And of course, since they come from the the land of the birth of the Baha'i faith, they're very special to us and very precious. And so they came, if you can imagine, some of them had escaped to India some years before, and they came to Canada in the middle of the winter with no winter clothes. And so we would show up, not just us personally, but throughout the region, with boots and coats and hats, and they would come and stay in our homes, and people would help them to get settled and get established. So the warm welcome into the Baha'i community that was already there is so very striking. But the other thing we found is that these Baha'is have been so creative in ways to reach out to people who are not Persian and not Baha'i, just the general community in, in friendship, and that they are very, very reluctant to interpret anybody's reaction to them as racism, even though it may be. They're so grateful to be in a place where they don't have to worry if their home's going to be burned down when they go away for the weekend. And so they really, they're really very, very inspiring. I'd like to go back to the two books, about one about uh, widows and one about widowers. Can you tell me a little bit about those two books and what they covered? I was very fortunate when I was studying. I actually studied with the professor who was the very first person to study women's experiences as widows in North America. This was in the 1970s that she did this. And there has been some research on widows, but it's been surveys. It's pretty dry stuff. And what I really wanted to do was give the women who were widows an opportunity to tell their own story in their own way, because I saw them as experts in their own lives. And so I interviewed about 28 women, a long interviews, two hours, three hours long sometimes. I had some areas I wanted to talk about, but mostly... Um, I asked them, and then they would go on and tell their story, and then I would ask them to give me more detail or to give me an example, and that was how the interviews went. So this book really is moving away from sort of this doom and gloom, these poor old sad, passive women full of problems kind of approach to seeing them as very dynamic, very creative, very resilient, and really looking at what they've done to rebuild their lives, because Losing a spouse of 30 or 40 or 50 years is extremely difficult. And they were very, very generous to me. And so when my books come out, they're written, I hope a scholarly audience will read them, but they're also written for a general audience. And they often quote from the women's own words and talk about how they built their relationships, what they talked about learning to do new things, 
and that sort of thing. So I think, it, you know, you see the difficulty in their lives, but you also see how strong they are through these challenges. I knew that men's experiences would be very different from women's experiences, and so I was fortunate to get a grant to interview men about their experiences. For men, also similarly, a lot of quotes in the book accessible to a general audience. You can see the creativity that they use. The other thing that you see with men is a real challenge to their sense of themselves as men when they become widowed in old age. And so that's an interesting part of the book, too. Now, what do you mean by that, Deborah? Well, you know, um, in order for a man to be truly masculine in kind of the North American sense, what we call in sociology hegemonic masculinity, they need to... um, they need to make a lot of money. They need to be physically strong. They should be with a woman. Sometimes they should uh, talk down women because they should be superior to women. They should be sexually active. So those are all components of masculinity. Well, when a man gets older, he retires, so he doesn't have a job. He's not as strong as he was when he was younger. And if he's a widower, he no longer is involved with a woman. And so... This challenges his sense of masculinity sometimes. It's interesting to see how the men deal with that because it, it is a different kind of challenge and one that they have to face every time they interact with other people and even when they think about themselves. So are there any other projects that you're interested in uh, pursuing that uh, on the not necessarily the near horizon but something you've always wanted to pursue but the time hasn't come yet? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm a, I have grandchildren now. This is really great. <laughs> this is something uh, different. I don't know. My husband is retired. Um, I have five more years until I reach retirement age, and uh, I have a. I'm very fortunate in my work that I'm. I've been appointed a Canada Research Chair five years ago, and which means that I really can spend all my time, almost all my time, doing research with just a little bit of teaching involved. I like the teaching. I love the research. So that's just been renewed, that term, and that will take me to 65, at which time I'll retire. So I have some projects that I'm, that I'm interested in pursuing just in terms of the research. And, of course, we're, we're very active in our Baha'i community. We live in a very wonderful little Baha'i community. There's 11 adults in our community and about 14 children and youth. And we are, I've already told you that I live in a place that's very homogeneous, But my little community, for some reason, every single couple in the community is intercultural. So I come from a Jewish background. My husband comes from a Dutch background. We have uh, one man who's African-Canadian. We have a couple, um, two couples where one of the members is Persian and one of the members is not Persian. And another couple where one of the members is Blackfoot Aboriginal and the other is European background. So it's, it's a really fabulous community. And uh, all the time that we can spend working with that community is, is just really a gift. So you mentioned some research that you'll be doing as part of research, as part of the research chair. What, uh, yes. what kind of research are you looking forward well, to? I have, um, I have two projects in mind. The first one is to interview people, this is very complicated, who live in rural areas because we have a very rural province who have arthritis or osteoporosis, something like that. I'm always studying in terms of aging, 
who have recently started using some sort of device to get around, a walker, a cane, a wheelchair, because these are people, again, who are very marginal, who experience a great deal of prejudice. And I want them to explain to me about their experiences and, again, to provide a voice, an opportunity to hear that point of view because I am sure, even before I talk to them, that people are going to be creative and resilient and have a lot of good ideas. That's one group. The other project um, I think is just going to be really fun, and a junior colleague and I are hoping to join the Red Hat Society. I don't know if you know about this group. No, I don't. But this, uh, these uh, groups of women, they're all over North America. They started in the States, but they're all over Canada as well. And they're women over 50, and um, they form small groups, but they're, there's an international organization that they all belong to. And you may have seen them around. They put on red hats and purple boas and scarves, and they go out in groups, and they have a good time together in a fairly raucous fashion. You know, women, as they get older, are supposed to sort of fade away and be invisible. That's what you're supposed to do as an older woman. But these women make sure that they're seen, and they're, they're inspired by an old poem called Warning by a poet named Jenny Joseph. And the poem starts, when I am an old woman, I shall wear purple with the red hat that doesn't match. Hmm. And they're inspired by that poem. And so I'm planning to join a group, if they allow me to, and to study that group, because, again, groups that that are marginalized, that suffer from prejudice, uh, to find out about that group. So that's, that's going to be fun. Well, Deborah, I want to thank you very much for uh, telling your story. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Deborah Van Den Honard, a Canada Research Chair and professor at St. Thomas University. She's the author of three books, The Widowed Self, The Older Woman's Journey Through Widowhood, By Himself, The Older Man's Experience of Widowhood, and Equality of Men and Women, The Experience of the Baha'i Community of Canada, which she is co-author with her husband, Will. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Passing judgment
cause confusion All wrapped up in our own illusions When will there be a time to love? We had time to condemnation Time for oil excavation Hatred, violence, and terrorism. When will there be a time to love? At this moment in time, we have a choice to make. Thank you. 
listen Can you hear the sound Of hearts beating All the world around Down in the valley Out on the plain Everywhere around the world The heartbeat sounds the same Black or white Red or tan It's the heart of the family of man Whoa, it's beating away Whoa, it's beating away Whoa, it's beating away Listen Can you hear the sound Laughter All the world around High in the mountains Down by the sea Everywhere around the world Laughter sounds the same to me Black or white Red or tan It's the sound of the family of man This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.